Welcome to Lit Poetry, the podcast where we go on a journey of discovery, reading, analyzing, and discussing great poetry from around the world. Poetry is worth it because the reading and writing of poetry is a revolutionary act that has the potential to transform both the reader and our world. When I was a kid, I didn't have the best time with animals. I remember as a 10-year-old screaming out loud as I pedaled my push bike down a hill at breakneck speed as a magpie swooped and dive-bombed me again and again. Ah! Get away! Help! I seem to remember calling out, lucky not to come off my bike. I can even remember the snapping sound the magpie's wings and beak would make on each attack until finally... I got out of the bird's range. And I can also remember as a young fella jumping over a friend's backyard in the afternoon to retrieve a ball, only to be confronted by a German shepherd. The dog attacked me and I was lucky to scramble back over the fence. Added to these memories, I can add others. The blue bottle jellyfish wrapped around my calf down at the ocean, plus numerous bee stings and bull ant bites. You'd be inclined to think I was destined for a life lived far away from the vicinity of animals. But as with most people, the beauty, awe and comfort that I have taken from my other experiences with living creatures in my life has always outweighed the negative events. When my father left my family for another woman when I was about five years old, I can still remember the soft purring sounds that our cat used to make as I slept on my bed at night my own private comforter, or the glorious sight of a pelican coming into land on a lake, just a sight of pure grace. I can even remember the pure awe and delight I felt the time our family went to SeaWorld on the Gold Coast and I got to watch the acrobatics of dolphins at play in the water up close. What a day that was. So despite the bad experiences I've had, I believe that The living creatures in our world, generally speaking, enhance our life and connect us to something bigger than ourselves. And today on Lit Poetry, we are going to explore a poem that shines a specific light on the wonder and joy that the natural world can help us to experience. This is one of my favourite poems of all time. I really hope you like it. May I present to you The Windhover by Jared Manley Hopkins. The Windhover by Gerard Manley Hopkins To Christ Our Lord I caught this morning morning's minion, Kingdom of Daylight's Dauphin, Dapple Dawn drawn falcon in his riding, Of the rolling level underneath him steady air, And striding high there, How he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing In his ecstasy, then off, off forth on a swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend, the hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind, my heart in hiding, stirred for a bird. The achieve of, the mastery of the thing, brute beauty and valour and act, O oh, air, pride, plume, here buckle, and the fire that breaks from thee then 
a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, oh my chevalier. No wonder of it, sheer plod makes plough down silly and shine, and blue bleak embers are, my dear, fall, gall themselves, and gash gold vermilion. The Windhover is one of Gerard Manley Hopkins' most celebrated poems. Though the poem was written in 1877, it was only actually published after his death in 1918. The poem is dedicated to Christ our Lord. The Windhover is a religious poem written by Gerard Manley Hopkins, who converted to Roman Catholicism while studying at Oxford University. Hopkins, who went on to become a Jesuit priest, actually burned all the poems he wrote in the belief that his love of poetry was in conflict with the demands of his Catholic faith. Fellow poet and colleague Robert Bridges, however, retained copies and made certain they were published after Hopkins' death. Even though he wrote during the Victorian era, Hopkins's poetry was unusual and progressive for its time. Hopkins's decadent use of poetic devices acrobatic turns of grammar and his distinctive use of sprung rhythm were noticeable parts of his poetic style. The Windhover, which illustrates all these hallmarks well, was regarded by Hopkins himself as the finest poem he ever wrote. A lover of the musicality of language, in the Windhover we witness a gifted poet reaching for a language worthy of capturing a glimpse of what he saw as God's creation. A created world that, according to Hopkins, was imbued with God's spirit itself. Described in the poem as the fire that breaks from all things. Clearly, when compared to Matthew Arnold's poem, Dover Beach, written at a similar historical time about the decline of faith in society, and featuring here at Lit Poetry in a few weeks' time, we get a more optimistic message about the state of faith in our world. To finish with, it should be pointed out that Hopkins's fluid and rich style of poetry was very instrumental in shaping the outlook of poets such as Dylan Thomas, T.S. Eliot and W.H. Auden. So I want to say a few things here about the form, metre and rhyme of the poem. The Windhover is a sonnet, a 14-line poem divided into an octet, the first eight lines, and a sestet, the final six. The octet and sestet traditionally function as a kind of question and answer. In this poem, the octet, the first eight lines, raise questions about the beauty of the Windhover to engender a sense of awe wonder. The final sestet then marks a shift where the poem's focus becomes more abstract. Here, the poem widens its orientation to ponder the manner in which the bird's grace, skill and beauty is an expression of the majesty of God, a majesty that, according to Hopkins, is present in all things. 
The rapturous tone of the poem basically turns the poem into a hymn of praise and gratitude for the beauty of the created world. In the final three lines of the poem, having soared to great lyrical heights, the sonnet becomes literally more down-to-earth, making reference to ashes and soil and expressing admiration for the way the spark of life burns within the earthly and common things of this world. Turning away from the idea of form and to that of metre, Hopkins's poetry is known for its sprung rhythm. While other poets of the Victorian era tended to adhere to strict metre such as iambic pentameter, Hopkins's poetry is more organic, experimental and unpredictable. He mixes up his use of stressed and unstressed syllables within words, for instance. The rhythm of sprung lines usually starts with a stress, followed by a number of unstressed beats. There is no need to get too caught up in the technical details. The point is where the stresses occur. The sprung rhythm helps the language sound exciting and daring, evoking the speaker's ecstatic feelings towards the sight of the windover and also reflecting the daring and unpredictable movement of the bird in the sky. Other than the first line of the poem, no other lines strictly conform to a strict iambic beat, which is part of what makes Hopkins's poetry so alive and magnetic. And finally, in terms of rhyme scheme, there are a number of details to highlight. Rhyme is used throughout the sonnet. However, the entire first eight lines rhyme in words ending in the sound of ing, I-N-G, with some ing sounds being stressed and others not. Case in point here is wing versus riding. The most important thing to notice about the rhymes in the first eight lines is the way that most of them refer to action and movement, riding, striding, wing, swing and gliding. This helps build the picture of the kestrel as a master of aerial skill, manipulating the wind to hover and then to dive at will. The rhymes in the final six lines follow a more traditional pattern of CD, CD, CD. The major theme in The Windhover involves celebrating what Hopkins considered to be the divine manifestation of God in the natural world, although one does not have to be religious to appreciate this theme. The Windhover is perhaps a kind of joyous prayer, a celebration that wonders at and affirms the beauty of the natural world and in turn gives honour to a creative force that Hopkins believed is responsible for it. The poem attempts to vigorously show that nature and God are not really separate, The beauty of nature is both evidence of and a way of experiencing the divine. While the latter half of the poem explores the way that natural beauty in our world relates to God, the first part of the poem brings nature to life on the page. In the first stanza, the speaker is almost dazed by the splendour and audacity of the falcon. The poem's language is fittingly full of its own glittering beauty here. 
through poetic techniques like alliteration, assonance, enjambment, sprung rhythm and sejura, as the speaker attempts to articulate his sense of rapture. The emotional impact of this encounter is clear from the start when the speaker catches the bird's escapades in the sky. The speaker then gapes at the wondrous features of the Windhover, each one magnificent in its own way. Consider the description of the falcon's dappled feathers, its ability to smoothly hover in the strong air currents, the way it swiftly turns and dives, presumably to catch prey. All of these affect the speaker profoundly. This emotional reaction comes about because the speaker sees in the wonder of the Windhover proof of God's existence, beauty and power. In other words, the poem doesn't just exist for the sake of it, it exists to express something about the divine. With the first part of the poem illustrating the prowess and glory of the falcon, the sestet places the bird in a wider and arguably more mysterious context. The speaker admires the falcon's brute beauty and valour and act, its fearlessness and physical abilities, but importantly sees these as proof of a type of metaphorical fire that also breaks from Jesus Christ, to whom the poem is dedicated and to whom the poet rigorously worships as part of his Catholic faith. This fire is God's creation. Despite the religiosity of this poem, one can still read Hopkins as an atheist, agnostic or a theist. No matter your views, there is something in this poem for all readers, despite its thick religious language and associations that might put some readers off. And that is because deep below the religious language is the expression of a fundamental human experience, a universal experience, that of joy and rapture in life that rare experience accessible by all human beings, no matter their religious sensibilities, of being drawn out of oneself into an experience of otherness, self-forgetfulness and exhilaration and praise for something beautiful and glorious in and of itself. A woman who has just given birth often knows something quite profound about this experience, as does a lone surfer sitting in the surf as the next powerful set of waves rolls in. In other words, while pleasure plays such a central role in people's lives, the type of joy Hopkins is describing is not like normal pleasure. It is more virtuous and healthy. Too often the pleasures we pursue are merely acts of consumption or vanity. But joy, pure joy, brings with it the experience of escaping the prison of our own selves, And it is a rare event to be truly cherished. The Windhover helps us to remember the importance of joy and delight and reminds us that being fully human is an act of celebration and gratitude. So I want to finish this podcast just by saying that the Windhover argues that the beauty to be found in life is not only to be found in magnificent creatures like a bird, but in all things. Even unremarkable objects or actions can contain 
the intense gold vermilion of true beauty. As an example, the speaker mentions the mundane and repetitive task of ploughing the soil, which brings the reward of food and sustenance. A secondary, less literal meaning of this sheer plot could be the way that human beings become more fully alive by doing mundane tasks in a meaningful way, like simple acts of kindness, which one day may be revealed as being laced with honour and grace. This, dear audience, is one of my favourite poems of all time. Every time I read it, I get caught up in its musicality and sheer delight. It's an amazing poem. And of course, if you want to know a little bit more about the poetic techniques being used in the poem, there is also another video on the Lit Poetry channel that you can access, which has a lot more detail about these things. But that's all we have time for for this week on the Lit Poetry Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this poem. Until next time, I'll see you later. The Wind Hover by Gerard Manley Hopkins To Christ Our Lord I caught this morning morning's minion Kingdom of Daylight's Dauphin, dapple dawn drawn falcon in his riding, of the rolling level underneath him steady air, and striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy, then off, off forth on a swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend, the hurl and gliding, rebuffed the big wind, my heart in hiding, stirred for a bird, the achieve of the mastery of the thing. Brute beauty and valour and act, O oh, air, pride, plume, here buckle, and the fire that breaks from thee then, a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O oh, my chevalier. No wonder of it, sheer plod makes plough down silly and shine, and blue bleak embers are, my dear, fall, gall themselves, and gash gold vermilion. You've been listening to the Lit Poetry Podcast, presented by James Laidler. For more podcasts, poetry videos, and other useful resources, visit our website at www.litpoetry.com. Thanks for listening.